Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. We're here with Paul Lin of the Vipassana Society. And Paul, I'd just like to take a moment to welcome welcome you to the human experience, Paul. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to have you here, man. I think uh, meditation is is definitely an important part to our everyday experience. And you know what? Vipassana sounds like another word to people, you know, another Sanskrit kind of word that I should probably know the meaning to. What is it? So what does it mean? Actually, it's a it's a Pali word. Uh, Pali is um, similar to Sanskrit, only it was the language of the common people, whereas Sanskrit was more for the uh, higher class or higher echelon people. Um, and the word Vipassana, it's got different translations, but I think the most effective translation in my view is it means insight. It means to see clearly. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really intriguing. Um can you tell us more? So what is what is um what does Vipassana involve? Well Vipassana, I mean it's it's a um in one sense it's a meditation technique um or set of techniques. Uh in another sense it's it's a way of really understanding or perceiving life. And, you know, the, the point of the meditation is to open our understanding, to really open our mind, open our heart to reality. And, um, you know, this has to occur in a way that's, you know, uh, experiential. It has to be direct. And in order to come to that, in most cases, uh, a practice or a, a method, you might say, is helpful for many people. I mean, some people just get lucky and they kind of wake up and see clearly um, you know, through um, sometimes there's a trauma and people will see clearly, you know, beyond the, the conditioned mind in that circumstance. Some people have this experience, you know, when they're dying. Um, other people, you know, go into nature and they'll experience a deep connection that opens them, you know, beyond their typical ordinary perception. Um, but for, you know, uh, you might say uh, handy daily use, uh, meditation comes in extremely well, and it's very, very simple practice. Um, I'd like to just make a differentiation between what sometimes is called mindfulness, because sometimes Vipassana is also translated as mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, and concentration. Concentration is something that happens, um, you know, for all of us to varying degrees as we live our lives. Um, and concentration is definitely part of vipassana. But the point of concentration, if we were able to concentrate our mind, would be to direct that concentration into clearly seeing um, things as they really are, is the way it's often spoken in the teachings. To see things as they really are, not as we think they are, not as we believe they are, and not as we've been told they are, but as they really are. Hmm. Interesting. So, so it seems like Western culture is a bit behind in regards to meditation versus Eastern culture. Why do you think that these these systems are kind of starting to pervade our culture here in Western society? Mm. 
One thing is because it's it 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 it's so effective. I mean, you know, it's it's such a buzzword nowadays, meditation and mindfulness. The National Institutes of Health is spending more money right now as we sit here uh, studying meditation than anything else in the history of that institution. It's an amazing process. It's uh, primarily based at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison. And what that's going to do eventually, I think, is going to take meditation. It's going to just blow it wide open and, and, and pull off sort of the you know, religious connotations, even the spiritual connotations. It's going to bring it right to this level of deep and profound practicality. And I think that's one of the things that's really, really intriguing about it is it enters education, medicine, uh, as it enters the arts, um, this, you know, I just hear more and more and more all the time about all these different ways that people are applying meditation, applying mindfulness, uh, because it works. It really, it helps people in so many different ways. Hmm. So do you, do you think that a 10 day course is something that you would recommend to everyone or is it suited for some people and not others? Um, uh, let me just give a little background. That particular uh, course, that ten-day course, that is a, that's a style of vipassana. If if you and I went into Burma right now, we would find somewhere between thirty and forty or more very potent, um, you know, powerful lineages uh, of vipassana meditation, and and all of these would be styled slightly differently. Um, that particular ten-day course that um, is taught worldwide in the tradition of uh, S.N. Goenka, who recently mm. passed away, is a beautiful course. It's a very effective course. Um, and yeah, I would recommend it to just about everybody. Um, it is intensive, and it's nice to know what you're getting into um, and be committed. And they ask you if you come on that kind of course. They say, look, you know, um, basically, you know, this is what we're doing. And you're not going to know what it's like till you get into it, of course. But, you know, uh, you know, they're looking for serious, committed people to come and do that. Um, I remember when I did my first course back in the 80s, um, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And um, there were these uh, very good looking actors that showed up from New York City and they were watching us almost like we were like specimens. They kind of like were looking at us and we were having dinner and they were watching us. <laughs> and they were they were they were very sort of attractive people dressed very well. And they were watching us with big eyes. And then eventually they just disappeared. And I think they probably said, you know what? This isn't for us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's just my imagination. But, um, you know, for me, like many people, uh, that, that practice is very, very intensive and it works very, very well. Um, one of the downsides of that is it, it, it does have a lot of concentration in it. And, and so there's a recommendation to keep up that practice if you're going to utilize that because – for me, there was a um, kind of a split between that style of vipassana, that concentration practice, and the rest of my life. I'd have these wonderful experiences in the meditation, and I get very concentrated and focused. And then I'd come out and be, you know, pretty much as neurotic as ever when I engaged in the rest of my life. And it took some years to really kind of, in a way, sort of bring these these different, you know, aspects of my experience together such that the mindfulness and some of the effects of the mindfulness were actually, you know, directly translating into my life in a, in a more complete and whole way. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, during the research for this interview, I was kind of watching the Goenka videos and right. on YouTube, and 
Uh, he mentions these subtle realities that, I mean, first you kind of start focusing on your your breath and you're watching your breathing. And then he mentions these sort of subtle realities that start to surface. What are some of those subtle realities that he's talking about? Yeah, um, they're, they're really not that subtle. I mean, he might be talking about something that, that I don't know about, but things like calmness and tranquility and um, contentment and equanimity, um, you know, these kinds of qualities are there in all of us. And what happens when you sit down and, and meditate and begin to actually release yourself from, you know, a lot of excessive thinking, most of us probably think a lot more than we need to. Um, you know, our minds get very habituated into conceptualizing and, and viewing life through our concepts and ideas. And as you settle down beneath that and you sort of go, you know, underneath or behind your cerebral cortex and you just kind of relax and settle down, you actually start to experience these subtle things. And they're, and they're, and they're, they're pretty direct and they're pretty easy to, to get in touch with as long as your life isn't so chaotic and, and stressed that, you know, when you sit down, that's all you really experience for a while until that that dissipates. Beyond that, you know, it, it certainly in the way that Goenka talks about the, the, the possibilities for, for human realization, um, he's really even talking about these sort of realms of, of existence that this is hard to kind of talk about, like, is this, is this in the body or is this something that happens when you, you're, you're done and you leave the body? Who knows for sure? I don't. Um, it's it's conjecture. But, you know, for me, there's, there's no point in ruling these things out, nor if I ha at the same time, if I haven't experienced it, then there's not a lot of value, I think, in clinging to it as, you know, this is the truth. So if I haven't seen it, then it's not really the truth. But things like loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, um, these qualities, you know, like, for example, loving kindness would be really feeling love for all things and all beings when your heart just really opens up. Compassion would be, you know, the most intelligent and true and fundamental response to suffering and difficulty. Sympathetic joy would be like somebody wins the lotto and instead of like I go, God, no, I, I, nothing good happens to me. <laughs> yeah, I like actually feel like really good for that other person's good fortune. Like I'd really just like hop on that, uh, you know, wave of goodness there and happiness and I experience that. And then equanimity, which is really emphasized a lot in that particular style of Vipassana, um, is this balance, this capacity to be with what's happening in a non-reactive and open, responsive way. And that really is a very, very subtle and ever-deepening thing to really find what it means to not just feel balanced physically, but feel balanced mentally, emotionally, and then in a way to even transcend your perceptions of, of balance such that, for example, at the time of the Buddha, there was... Um, a story about, um, you know, how he, he meditated with his teachers and he went as far as he could with them. And then he said, look, my mind is still afflicted. I still have suffering. Like, how do I deal with this? And they said, ah, da, 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 you know, you can't really take that out. You know, you can't really fix that. Just hang out with us. You got it real quick. You learn the method. Just study here. Stay. You know, a lot of students want to learn this. Just stay here. He said, no, I got to go. I, I need to find an ultimate truth of release from this angst that I feel, as subtle as it may be. So he kept meditating, and then he, he found this meditation. He called it, he called it Vedana Narodha. Vedana means sensation. Narodha means extinction. Hmm. 
It's extinction. This is really interesting to me, very subtle. Distinction, elimination of all feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's three kinds of feeling in Buddhist psychology. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And all of our emotions would be classified in those three feelings. They use the word mental feeling in, in uh, Abhidharma, Buddhist psychology. But imagine most of us feel very conditioned by feeling. You know, if it feels good, we like it. If it doesn't feel good, if it doesn't feel good enough, we start to not like it. You know, adjust, 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 adjust. There's one fellow that went on one of those 10-day retreats, very smart guy, medical doctor, you know, very open-minded guy in many ways. He never stopped and did the technique. The whole 10 days, he's going like this. <laughs> and he never stopped, and he didn't get anything out of it. And he went away very judgmental. He said that was a waste of time. I was like, well, of course it was a waste of time. You didn't do it. You know, you didn't stop. But, you know, that would be like, agitation based on a lot of, you know, difficult feeling that he was having, I guess. So this Vedana Narodha, which would be just a, a very deep state of transcendent, absorptive, spacious freedom. Wow. Still in the body, Xavier, still in the body, but Vedana Narodha. Now, nobody's apparently at that time, the Buddha had found this, so he had to name it. You know, he had to actually come up with those 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 words. I mean, he went further than that, like in terms of experience subtleties. There was like, at that time, there was a word for the atom. It was called a kalapa. Kalapa was the, the Pali word for the atom. He said he saw something more subtle in his meditation than the atom. He, and so he had to name that. He called it atakalapa, hmm. which is a more, <laughs> it would be like the quark, I guess, or something, but just even more subtle. So... You know, our what happens when we settle down is we begin to see and experience. When I use the word see, I mean directly experience. We begin to directly experience things much more intimately, much more subtly, much more closely. And it it seems, to me at least, that that deepening is infinite. That it's not, it's, it doesn't have a limit to it. That, that, that waking up or realizing our potential is, is, is not like a state that we arrive at and it's done. It's an expansive uh, opening into infinity. Wow. Um, so there, there does seem to be an aspect of putting your body and your mind into this sort of uncomfortable state. How, mm. how does that kind of relate to what, what you're talking about? Well, hopefully not, not too much in the sense that, you know, if you sit down to actually begin some, say, formal meditation, because the point really of, of this formal meditation would be to open you up so you could see that, that awareness is ongoing. It's the context of our life. And that, and that, 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 that the formal meditation begins as something that helps you realize that it's possible to actually live meditatively more and more of the time. And what that means is to actually be relatively free from affliction, living and doing all the things that we do. Um, so when it comes to you know this sort of discomfort that some people will experience when they both first sit down, well, if your life internally or externally is untidy, you know, if you're, if you, you know, um, 
your diet's not good, if if you you know haven't exercised, if you haven't taken care of yourself, then you're probably going to be uncomfortable for a little while until you settle down and hopefully get past some of that surface tension, some of that surface stress can peel off. But as far as sitting down and sticking your legs up in a full lotus, uh, that's pretty dumb unless you know what you're doing and your hips are opened up and your knees. It's a nice posture if you know how to do it and it works. But you know, in Goenka's courses, you had to sit on the floor and there wasn't any walking meditation. And it's pretty intensive. You know, you sit for an hour and they asked you not to move at all. And it was incredibly painful uh, until you began to open up and get through some of that surface tension. And that usually takes, in a 10-day course, you know, most people by 6th, 7th day, they're really starting to open up. 8th, ninth day, and it's like, whoa, you know, like whole new world of experiences available there. And then the 10th day comes and you start talking to everybody and everybody's full of energy and they're, you know, if they know each other, they're kissing and hugging. If they don't know each other, they might be kissing and hugging. And, you know, it's, <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. You never might see these people again, but, you know, you feel extremely intimate because you've shared this very, very deep, you know, experience of silence and meditation. So, you know, the discomfort, the Buddha said the first noble truth, that these noble truths are truths of existence. He said it's suffering. And what's that mean? It, it means that, that life is, 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 um, has an element of unreliability about it. You know, that everything that's happening here is, is transient and changing. And if your mind's attached to that which changes, you suffer. Right. Period. And so that's where the real pain comes from. That's where the, the, the misunderstanding is. And that, that's, the, that's the perception or that's the conditioning that hopefully the meditation can help, uh, help alleviate. Why do you think that the breath is so important to understanding uh, yeah. meditation? Yeah, because it's an object that's there all the time. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to imagine it. The other thing about it is that it's both a physical and mental process. In other words... Obviously, you know, breathing is what in, in part keeps our body alive. So it's a physical process, but also it's a mental process in that our state of mind, our emotional state influences our breathing. And so if you start observing your breathing, and I'm talking about like the natural breathing, not doing like breathing exercises where you breathe a certain way like a pranayama, that's that's okay too, but that's different. Um, what happens is you start to actually your mind starts to actually be seen through the breathing. You experience your state of mind, you experience your emotional state there. When your state of mind changes, your, say your mind becomes more calm, your breath is changing. So there's a, there's a linkage there. The other thing that's helpful about the breathing is that from a psychological perspective, you know, we could just say, to use a simple model, there's a, there's a conscious, a subconscious, and an unconscious mind. And the unconscious, in this sense, is, you know, everything we're not yet conscious of. So that would be, in some people's mind, a superconscious mind as well. The gate or the door between the conscious and the unconscious can be softened and opened by attending to the breathing. And that's pretty interesting because what tends to happen then is, you know, and this is what people have a hard time with at first, sometimes if they've got a lot of stuff unresolved inside, sit down, start to pay attention to their breathing, and they don't get calm right away. They actually get kind of like they feel stuff coming up because the breath is actually helping their mind open. And so whatever's there is going to start to surface. If the person has a lot of fear in there, they have a lot of sadness, maybe they have a lot of confusion, doubt, 
that'll just start to surface and they'll start to see that. And if they if they understand how to practice meditation correctly, they're responding to that by opening, by being curious and interested, rather than bailing out and going and having an ice cream and watching television. Right. What do you what do you say to people who have deep rooted traumas that attend these courses? Well, um, it, it it can be challenging if if you have a if you have a lot of trauma and you come on a meditation retreat. Sometimes um, you're going to have a hard time unless you have good good guidance. And oftentimes, folks are going to benefit from from psychotherapy who have trauma if they've got a lot of unresolved things. Meditation is really good for some things. It's not particularly the greatest thing for trauma unless the person has a real stability of mind. Um, I had a fellow once who came and he was a really, had profound epilepsy, very, very sort of bad, grand mal seizures. And he was a really interesting guy. He was a martial artist and he took himself off the medication while he was in the, in the course in the meditation. And he let himself go through the experience. I don't know whether this was good or not, but he let himself go through the experience. And he said it was fine. He was okay with it. I I was nervous. And this guy was like, you know, an unusual human being in the sense that he was he was like a real warrior. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to hang with you. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to learn from you. But uh, you're, you're really doing something unusual here. Psychological trauma, emotional trauma, um... It can be tricky, and so I think what has to happen there is, you know, you you, you got to kind of person needs to make sure they're getting proper guidance. Uh, perhaps um, they are ready to perhaps um, not meditate quite as intensively. You know, I had a good friend that um, at one point years ago I did three months continuously of the meditation. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a guy as a roommate, and, and this guy would do a three-month course every year. So he'd been on, he was up to like his 10th year. Like that means like three months out of 12, he's in intensive meditation the whole, whole three months. And he's like on his 10th retreat, and, and he and I were like roommates. Not that we were, you know, talking because it's silent. And at the end of that, like we were like two and a half months into that, and the teachers told him to stop meditating. And I asked him about that after the course was over. I said, what was that about? He said, well, he was really, 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 really badly abused as a child. And he started to encounter some of that material. And they told him to just ease off. Just take it easy. Just go for walks. Just go into the woods. You know, walk around. Don't meditate intensively. And I think they made a choice there because they felt perhaps um, – this wasn't the best way to approach this. You know, that if you have a lot of trauma in your life that came from, say, early childhood with parents or with caregivers who weren't treating you correctly, number one, those experiences won't tend to come up so much in meditation. They might, but, but what they'll do is they'll come up in intimate relationships. And the best place to heal those experiences in, in, is in a corrective intimate relationship therapeutically. Meditation can help kind of soften you and make it available, but in terms of actually working the experience through, um, oftentimes a therapeutic relationship is very helpful for that and necessary. Hmm. It's very, very interesting. Um, so, trying to, I'm trying to formulate my next question here. Um, why do you think that this 
type of activity affects evolution so much. I, I understand that there is a conscious, we have a conscious mind and a subconscious mind, and it almost seems like the two are at war or in competition for something. So how does, how does Vipassana allow you to recognize these things? Is it, is it the, the aspect of canceling out all of these external influences like your phone and the internet and information? Mm. Um, that, the only reason for that is that most of us wouldn't get all that settled if we, if we kept being attentive to those things. If, if you want to get to a more sensitive, undefended, and open space, you know, with, let's just say now the body-mind process, um, a meditative setting, a quiet meditative setting is very helpful for that. Um, as far as this conflict, yeah, you're pointing to something that's, that's really kind of fascinating. Um, Freud once said that the best thing you can have is ordinary, typical human sadness. Like that's as good as it gets. And he, he didn't, you know, as much as he had insights into the unconscious mind, some wonderful insights, he, 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 ne he didn't get to the transcendent understanding of things uh, as exhibited by that statement. The best you can get is ordinary human sadness, so just go with it. No. The, 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 the rub or the conflict between what we want and what we actually have is profound. It's an extremely subtle and not so subtle thing. So I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, sort of just take what you said and pull it into this one little configuration here of what we want contrasted to what we have. The illusion is that we can have a happiness through our senses and through contact with this world of things that will ultimately satisfy us, and it never does, because all these things in this world are constantly changing. My relationships, my objects, uh, my comfortable mind states, my emotions, these things, I'm not talking about this in a pejorative way, these things by nature come and go. So part of the resolution of this, of this um, you might say, rub between what we want and what we actually have is you, when you begin to see the nature of experience, this is where insight happens. Most people, if you say, what's going on? And they can tell you. They can say, well, I'm thinking about my car, and I've got to change the oil, and now I'm going to go and have dinner with my friend and try to get to bed early. I've got to go to work tomorrow. And they can tell you what's in their mind. How do you feel? They might be able to tell you how they feel. How's your body? They could tell you about that. They're aware of the content of their experience, and they can describe that. When you meditate, what happens is you go inside that content and you begin to see the process of experience. And this is where all experience is the same. You see the actual process of everything, the process of your thoughts, your emotions, your sensations, your breathing, your perceptions. You even see the process of consciousness itself. And what this process is, is change. It's transformation. Everything is becoming something other than what it was the moment before. This second, this millisecond, this instant is dissolving, never to happen again in exactly the way it just happened. 
boom, over, boom, over, boom, over. And so when we begin to actually see this experientially, this, this grasping, clinging, this friction in the mind, this conflict you mentioned, releases. It might release just a little bit or it might release a lot. Or in some cases, kind of rare, it totally releases, completely releases and doesn't come back. Boom. And in that, what's happening then is a, is a, is a, is a human being is experiencing and is absorbed and is established in the true nature of their mind. And the true nature of the mind is liberation, freedom from suffering. Hmm. Wow. Um, that's really interesting, man. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I just, I have a roommate and she recently attended a 10 day course and just through, through my research, I, I found, I guess there was this Indian guy who, who took the course and he started experiencing this sensation of sort of disconnecting from mm-hmm. his body. Like, mm-hmm. He would try to feel his finger and his finger was no longer there. And he was, he was starting, he said that he was starting to feel like he was completely outside of his body. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of watching the experience happen from like above himself. Mm. Is that something that is common or? Um, it's not real common. It happens spontaneously sometimes to people where they were, uh, you're, you can, a couple of things can happen. The body can dissolve, meaning like the sensation of the body becomes so subtle that it just, the body just sort of disappears. That's not necessarily out of the body, it's, but it's a very different experience of the body. It's, it's really actually seeing the body for what it really is and, or experiencing it as it really is, which is it's ephemeral, it's changing. There's literally more space between the molecules that supposedly make up this form than there are molecules. I mean, literally, scientifically true. Out of the body is a little bit different. Like sometimes people will um, go outside the body and they'll be experiencing the body sitting there and they'll be up on the ceiling, they'll look down on it. There's nothing really special about that. It's just for some people it it um it lets you know that you're not just your body. That's kind of cool. And in some cases it'll actually dissipate a fair amount of fear of dying if you have that in you. It's like, well, like it happened to me once I was doing yoga and I just lay down to do like a corpse pose and I just just went outside the body and I was looking down. And I was like, wow, cool. And then I got like nervous. I felt nervousness come up. And then I was like, gravity was like, <laughs> and I was back in the body. I was like, because <laughs> it never happened to me before. But then I, then I relaxed and I went, cool. Now, some people who actually practice that, that's, that's like not part of a traditional Vipassana or Buddhist meditation. Um, they pretty much consider that sort of like uh, extrasensory phenomena. And don't really put a lot of emphasis. They just kind of say, well, just observe that. Okay, what happened there? Oh, you're seeing the nature of things, right? You're seeing that things come and go. Okay, that came and went. Okay, no big deal. It's the same process. Everything comes and goes. The mind sometimes wants to make something special out of this, that, or the other thing. That is a prison in a way because if I say this is special, then I'm, I'm excluding these other things. When I begin to really open up, everything is equally special. That's really, really cool. To me, that's like justice, finally. Hmm. 
So is it, it's not just that we have po- negative thoughts that we're trying to eliminate, but also we it's it's both. It's all the qualities of thought. It's any thought. So so then is it that you're you become sort of more pure by by disconnecting the the attachment that you have, the assignment that you have to, to thought? Well, actually, what happens is isn't so much like um, um, a disconnection from thinking or even a, necessarily a diminishment in thinking, although that sometimes happens. It's seeing thoughts clearly for what they really are. And as you see that thoughts are by nature, they're just it's just energy, really, hmm. constantly transforming, then your mind spontaneously, spontaneously, this isn't something that happens through effort, it happens spontaneously, your mind stops being as attached to thoughts. Therefore, then, it doesn't quite so much matter whether there's thoughts or not thoughts. People who sit, and this is a very common misconception, they sit and what they want to try to do is get quiet. Well, everything that you're going for, generally it means you're threatened by the opposite. So if I'm trying to go for a peaceful mind, then I'm going to be threatened by confusion and chaos. Think about it for a sec. If I'm I'm very attached to my youth, I'm threatened by old age. Attached to heterosexuality, threatened by homosexuality. Attached to vegetarianism, threatened by meat eaters. Attached to meat eating, threatened by vegetarians. Attached to Republican, threatened by the Democrats. Goes on and on and on. When you begin to actually see the nature of experience, and that means thoughts as well, naturally the mind opens and doesn't continue to be as attached. That's how it works. This effort to be not attached is another kind of attachment. Or people who say, I'm going to try not to be identified with anything. Now they're busy trying to be not identified with anything. So identified with not identified. It's a sort of a cat chasing its tail or a Mobius strip. It just goes round and round and round. That's actually what the Buddha called that. He called that samsara. He called that perpetual wandering. It's the human being wandering in the mind, wandering in the place to this place, to that place. Seeking what? Seeking the strange, but seeking actually, hopefully, the end of wandering. Wow. Uh, Bob Dylan had a line for that. He called it, no direction home. <laughs> that's, that's cool. <laughs> so is there is there an aspect, I mean, what makes Vipassana meditation so much different than the other meditations that we hear, what we hear about? Mm. Um, not really that much. The foundation of, of all meditation really is awareness itself. Um, I actually, back in the 70s, began with transcendental meditation, which is like a mantra. And it worked great. I mean, I get really blissed out and very happy, but I was still quite unintegrated and you know fairly neurotic in other places. And, but I was having some wonderful experiences of relaxing, you know, calmness. Uh, happiness, um, things like that. Vipassana has a wonderful gift in that, at least as I understand it and teach it, it it opens up a full integrative, um, you might say, framework for your whole life. Um, And 
the mindfulness or awareness itself is the context of our life. And as you begin to see this experientially, then, you know, what we would call ordinary human awareness, like I mentioned that before, like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sitting in my room talking to Xavier. We're doing the podcast. You know, what time is it? It's nine, da, 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 and so forth. That's ordinary awareness. Meditative awareness is inside ordinary awareness. It's hiding inside ordinary awareness. Meditative awareness is seeing things, observing things, without interfering with them. So it's right here, and everybody experiences this to some extent. Meditative awareness. As this meditative awareness wakes up, it starts to permeate more and more of your life. Um, and it has wonderful health benefits, de-stressing benefits, and of course it has the benefit of bringing insight. And that's what transforms our life. That's where real happiness comes from. It comes from insight. It doesn't come from getting what we want. It doesn't come from things. It doesn't come from even uh, states of mind and states of body. Those, those can make you happy to some extent, but they all change. Insight, insight is what really brings happiness. You know, Goinka said that he made an analogy about a tree. He said that by, by looking at our root issues and going down into the roots, because a tree can't be healthy unless you treat its roots and, and everything else. So he said that by going down and addressing the root issues of our, of our problems, like mm. really looking at the roots of our of what causes suffering, what causes all these uncomfortable feelings, that's where the real transformative change occurs. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question. The, and in the classic teachings, <clears throat> that Goenka is very, very classical. I mean, he's uh, a staunch, true Hindu by birth who was awakened through the meditation, but said, I'll keep my religion, even though of this, you know, Buddhist meditation, because you're not supposed to shift. If you're a, a Hindu, you don't jump out and become a Buddhist. That's like bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> you don't do that. Um, but yeah, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, wanting what I don't have. Hatred, not wanting what I do have. Delusion, being confused about it. Those three forces are rooted in ignorance. Ignorance, not meaning like I'm stupid necessarily, although I could be. Ignorance means ignoring the truth of the way things really are. Not seeing, not experiencing things as they really are. Experiencing things through this lens of conditioned thought and perception. So right away, we could, when I say this, you could think, oh, well, the thing is I got to get rid of the thoughts. You're not going to get rid of the thoughts. The harder you might try to get rid of the thoughts, the more you're going to be at conflict. Thoughts may dissipate or they may not dissipate. The important thing is to begin to see the nature of the thinking. So you see the nature of that greed, hatred, and delusion, and you see, you know what? I used to call these things defilements. These are incredibly interesting forces that do generate suffering when they're not seen clearly. When, they, when they're seen clearly, they come, they appear, and they dissipate. So what happens for people is they start to sit, and let's say they have a lot of wanting in their mind, a lot of greed. They start to see that clearly, and they start to see that unfolding. They start to see that dissipate, 
And all of a sudden, they're happy and they're smiling, sitting there watching their mind full of wanting because their, their mind's not reacting suddenly. It's amazing. Or they have a lot of hatred. They might have a lot of anger or a lot of confusion. That's, that's probably the hardest for people, I think. If, if it isn't fear, it's confusion. When they start to experience confusion, really experience that. Um, doubt, uncertainty, which is a kind of fear. That's where it starts to become very tricky and people will sometimes uh, want to stop. They want to not meditate. You know, they want to pull away because it, it can be very frightening. You know, you can, you can start to feel very, very lost even. And to have proper guidance at those times is incredibly important because you can, you probably, unless you have some kind of affliction where you're going to go off and take drugs or something and, you know, harm yourself, um, you're going to be okay, but you can get spun out because as you, as you go into your experience really deeply, it's like surgery. Do you think it's dangerous for a person to leave a course early? Um, it depends on what motivates them to leave. Um, you know, if they, if they were feeling very violent and they left the course, it could be a little tricky. They could go off and maybe do something really unskillful. Um, So generally, generally though, what will happen is the intensity of the meditation, you know, and the pain that they're experiencing is usually what drives people to want to leave. And then they'll just go back into their habits and not, not that much bad things will happen, you know, but they won't, they won't continue to progress. They'll come away sometimes like my friend, the doctor, I mean, he was okay, but he, um, he came away with so much more. He was very sort of, um, what's the word? subtly judgmental human being he was very um cynical had a cynicism about him and i think maybe the course and his experience of it the fact that he didn't do it strengthened a certain amount of cynicism in his mind for a while and I, you know these nothing really lasts so even if a person goes on a bender you know it, it's 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 gonna sort out in in time hopefully the issue would be if, if somebody had some real you know psychological disturbance and they left the course early you know, that would be a little bit tricky. You know, it'd be a, it could be a little bit like the analogy would be somebody goes into um, intensive psychotherapy in an inpatient setting, and then they s decide to pull out halfway through when they're really engaged with some very painful material. That probably wouldn't be the best idea. Right. So, so I was looking at your 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 history, and I noticed that you are a transpersonal psychologist. Yes. How did you, does this kind of go hand in hand with what you're doing with transpersonal psychology and meditation, kind of a parallel there or mm. two separate entities? No, they're very, very complementary. Um, you know, the psychology, you know, the, the forward edge of psychology is in this interface with the wisdom traditions and, you know, Buddhism is, is a wisdom tradition. It's not just a religion. Um, but this interface is where the transpersonal, you know, wakes up. It's it's where psychology opens into spirituality, really. And um, so for me, it's been a, a very natural blend, a very, you know, easy blend. And it turns out that, you know, a fair number of people that um, I see in therapy will at one point or another engage in some meditation and some will, will do it quite intensively and really integrate it into their life. 
And some people come in through meditation and then they, they see the need for some therapy and so they'll do some therapy as well. But they, they just complement, they just braid really, really beautifully together. It's it's very easy, I find, and almost seamless. Huh. Very cool, man. We're we're approaching the end here. Is there anything that you wanted to kind of get out? Any messages or suggestions to people who are looking into Vipassana and, and find it interesting? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful um, uh, offer you make there uh, to to just um, I'd emphasize you know the opportunity to experience it directly. Reading about it is interesting. There's a lot of great books and more and more all the time. But I would say you know actually having um, you know setting aside some time to to not just maybe sit for 10 or 15 minutes, but to actually, you know, do a course of meditation. That's where you really can see what meditation can offer is that even if it's just a weekend and you, and you stop and you give yourself to that, uh, case in point, you know, my, I have two children there, uh, one's in mid twenties and the other's early twenties. The, the youngest uh, one is a third year college student. And he, um, he came on the last retreat that I taught and he kind of came out of the blue. He said, I want to come on this. I said, really? Great. I said, can I ask you why? He said, well, you've been doing it for 40 years. There must be something to it. And number two, he said, I, I, I want to, to slow down. I want to give myself a chance to shift. He had a really profound experience and he said, I want to do more of it. Um, he hasn't read much about it. And then every now and then, you know, he'll ask me a question. He goes, Dad, what about that uh, third mark of existence? Could we talk about that? And he'll pull out something from the, you know, the teachings. But mostly he's just been enjoying the experience of it. And and that's what I would recommend to people is that, um, you know, they really give themselves a chance to taste it directly through through an actual, you know, period of time where they practice it. And that's, I think, you know, it's like I listen to other people play the piano. I might like the piano play the piano myself but when I really start to experience it through my own direct playing then I know what it is right uh, is there a website that people can find more information about you sure two websites there's the Vipassana website it's uh, www.floridavipassana.org and then there's a website that I have for psychotherapy it's uh, www.tsomt.org somt.com and that means transpersonal somatic therapy <laughs>